I was on one of these trolleys. Virtually from that moment, I lost any real sense of what I was doing. That's to say I deteriorated very fast after that moment. It marked my farewell to a different kind of life in a way. It was the frontier post between pre-COVID-19 and actually acknowledging that the disease existed and being treated. Back in May, we spoke to Roger Boys, the Times diplomatic editor and one of the first tranche of serious COVID sufferers in London. Roger had just been discharged from intensive care where he'd been battling for his life on a ventilator. Four months on, what are the long-term effects of COVID? Something uh, rather ungainly happened to us, to COVID sufferers. Our brains are reacting differently, but we're learning to deal with things. Since he left hospital, Roger has been monitored by a group of doctors who've agreed to talk to us about his progress. It's the combined effects of being on a ventilator, having low blood pressure, having low oxygen and all the medications, and being just laid in bed instead of active for many weeks that causes that, as you call it, long tail of illness. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, life after ICU, the long-term effects of COVID and its treatment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Back in May, the country was still in lockdown. And every evening, people would be glued to the government's daily briefings. Here's the start of the briefing. Uh, the business secretary, Alok Sharma, just coming in. Professor Stephen Powers. This was on May the 12th, when our first interview with Roger Boys was published. First, I want to update you on the latest data on the coronavirus response. 2,007,146 tests for coronavirus. I spoke to Roger after he'd left the intensive care unit, or ICU, at St Thomas's Hospital in London. He'd been on a ventilator for weeks, struggling to survive. His children had been called by the hospital and told he wouldn't make it. Now, back at home, apart from the physical effects on his health, he was coming to terms with what had been a harrowing experience. There were a whole ten days when he'd been sedated, which he couldn't account for at all. He was trying to piece together what had happened to him from his ICU patient diary 
a record kept by the nurses who'd looked after him. You are now being supported on one of our ventilators. You're currently being kept asleep with sedation, so your lungs can rest for a while. Roger, a man who spent the last 40 years travelling the world and making sense of it for readers of the Times, found himself suffering from hallucinations whilst he was in ICU, which made him question his perception of what was real. They call it COVID delirium, which is a kind of... Like, like fever dreams, only much more intense. He'd also woken up with a new beard. Then I realised underneath the beard there were these quite deep scar tissue and that the beard was actually disguising it, which ran from the bottom of my uh, ear to un- just underneath my mouth. Roger, who's now back writing his weekly column for The Times, has been having regular meetings with a critical illness recovery team who are monitoring his health post-intensive care. As one of the early cases of COVID, it's possible that Roger's recovery could provide new insights into the effects of the virus. I'm Roger Boys. I'm the diplomatic editor of The Times and I write a foreign policy column. And nowadays you'd have to say I'm a COVID survivor too, which is a, a completely new club. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you think of yourself? Well... I don't know. I mean, people classify me like that. And it's been a while now, uh, a while since we last spoke, in fact. Yes. And you'd think I'd just be back in the normal human race by now. But first of all, I'm still a guinea pig for doctors, not just me, but I'm that cohort from the early wave of COVID. And the doctor's are learning and they're learning about after COVID care. So they're quite curious about me, I think, or and, and people like me. And they're on the blower the whole time or on Zoom the whole time. So although it's nice to think of yourself as a survivor, if you think that that means moving on, it doesn't really. It's because there's this period of analysis now where People work out where is this disease going and they want to get as many clues from us as possible. And that's interesting in a kind of weird journalistic way, but doesn't set you free. Are you longing to be free now? Does it feel like COVID is still a big part of your life? It is, but I mean, frankly, it's part of everybody's life, isn't it? It's complex uh, because I still don't know what caused what, whether COVID caused certain uh, physical responses and and cognitive responses that I'm having now or whether it was the treatment for COVID. I still don't know where the illness is going. I still don't know whether I've got immunity as a result of having COVID. That's changing by the day as different uh, variants of COVID now re-emerge. You wonder whether you're up for a second round. Let's hope not. Yeah, let's. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Monitoring Roger's progress as part of his critical illness recovery clinic are... Joel Mayer. I'm a consultant in intensive care at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. And I'm Dr Alex Quigley. I'm a clinical psychologist also working at St Thomas's with Joel and the team. Roger has very kindly given them permission to discuss his case. But first, they explained a bit about their roles. I get involved in both looking after patients within intensive care and also after intensive care as they recover 
from their illness. And I am a psychologist working with staff, patients and sometimes relatives as well. I'll also work with people who have been discharged home and we will meet them again in the follow-up clinic. And Joel, with ICU, we always think of it as being so intense. You don't really tend to think about the care that goes on after people leave. How long do you still keep up with patients? Being in intensive care is a full-on thing to undergo, even if it's just a few days. And the impacts can range from you know, very mild to quite significant. In some cases, people feel better than they did before intensive care, but in other cases, struggle really with elements of life. So we see getting home as huge milestone but also for some people just the beginning of adjusting back to a life where things don't quite work as they did either in their body or their mind so follow-up after intensive care has gained a lot of attraction in the last 10 15 20 years and covid kind of threw a further spotlight on it we try to follow people up for up to 12 months where needed and that usually involves two or three different appointments over the course of that first year Dr. Joel Mayer didn't actually treat Roger, but he noticed his name on the clinics list when they began his post-ICU care. Whilst we like to treat everyone exactly the same, we are also aware of people's professions. It, it helps us to work towards recovery goals. It didn't escape my notice that by then Roger had also published an article in the British Medical Journal, another one in the Times, and his name was popping up on Twitter. So when we actually came to say hi to him in this virtual appointment that we had in the beginning of May with him at his house and us in the hospital. We did know a little bit about him already. And what has it been like working with him on his treatment? Is it quite annoying to have a journalist as a patient? <laughs> well, there are certain professions that doctors certainly and, and other clinicians become more aware of. But no, I mean, doctors are quite hard to look after sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been actually... A really interesting process to first read some of the things that he wrote before meeting him. And, and I say that because cognition and, and mental function is something that can be affected by intensive care in general and coronavirus too, and just having low oxygen and being on a ventilator. So it gave me a very, and Alex too, a special insight into the person we were about to meet. And then I've just found his curiosity about his own experience his curiosity about his symptoms and the way that he's been reflecting on his experience and trying to build a narrative around it as interesting as many other patients and unique to work with him and Alex how about you one of the things that struck me individually specifically about Roger was that he was very very curious about some of his experiences in a way that some people can be but often people are just kind of happy to be home thank you very much so I think he had some quite confusing and scary experiences and he was coming to terms with those but he had a lot of questions and I suppose that maybe is quite predictable given his job. So Roger the last time we spoke you'd just been through the most grueling few weeks in hospital and you were still sort of very much recovering. Since then you've had to go back to speak to, to doctors. How's that been? What was it like walking back into hospital having been there so long? The hospital doesn't hold any terror for me. It probably holds terror for my family because they're the ones who kept getting phone calls from doctors saying he might not make the night. But I was out of it. Yeah, I was conked out on sedatives or I was on the ventilator and not knowing what on earth was happening. 
I would rather have not been there, but it wasn't horrific. And the process of leaving hospital then is this digestion, this period of post-treatment digestion when you try and work out what it all means. And that's quite complex. But symptom by symptom, as they occur in this long tail, the doctors are being quite good in talking you through why this has happened and just solving and knocking them off like like coconuts on a coconut stall. They just basically chuck a ball at the next coconut to come up. Eventually they knock it down, you feel better, and then another coconut pops up, you know. So that's that's what's happened. I mean, since leaving, I've had a all-body skin rash. I've had um, uh, tendonitis, which is a kind of very fragile Achilles tendon. Weird stuff. Stuff you would expect, like really heavy headaches, but they're receding now a bit. Lung inflammation was the main thing. So you can't really stand up and say, I'm, I'm well again, great. And of course, you can stand up and say, I'm alive again, great. But there's a part two, and maybe even a part three. Joel, we've also spoken to Roger about some of the ailments that he's still experiencing at the moment. Are those part of what we're hearing described as a long tail of COVID? Or is that just part of having been in ICU? We've spent 20 years learning about what intensive care can do to you, irrespective of your illness. It's the combined effects of being on a ventilator, having low blood pressure, having low oxygen and all the medications, and being just laid in bed instead of active for many weeks that causes that, as you call it, long tail of illness. So as we've done our critical illness recovery clinic and now seen over 200 patients who were in our intensive care with coronavirus, it's becoming clear that by and large, it's the intensive care effects that are predominating. Coronavirus, most people recover quickly as you would from other severe viral illnesses. But as we're hearing, there's a proportion of people who are left with prolonged symptoms that I hope will eventually resolve, but that are to do with either muscle fatigue or cognitive fatigue, sometimes breathlessness if the lungs have been affected and occasionally some other more unusual symptoms, but they are really more rare. But coronavirus has had a few strange effects on people's skin and occasionally brain. In the UK, there have been more than 340,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus, although research suggests the true figure, including people who haven't been tested, could be well over 3.4 million. And then there are the long-term effects. According to one study, an estimated 600,000 people in the UK could be suffering with post-COVID syndrome, with lingering after-effects such as crushing fatigue, breathlessness and brain fog, weeks or even months after catching the virus. Recovery time after being in ICU can be equally ambiguous. We're only six months since the first few cases in this country and of course we can only tell how long it lasts by those few people who have still got symptoms of presenting to their doctor. There are different efforts going on to try and find out are there medium to long-term effects or even long to forever effects of having had coronavirus on the liver, the kidneys, the heart, the brain. So I think doctors are increasingly anecdotally and systematic way building their knowledge of what coronavirus impacts are. 
And independent of COVID, for the people who get the side effects of having been very, very ill in ICU, how long does that recovery period tend to last? It's a spectrum. I think that that ballpark of six months to years is a useful gauge. So if you look at a cohort of people who had severe respiratory failure for whatever cause, then symptom recovery goes on well into that first year. If you keep following them for a bit longer, you can actually continue to detect changes to things like lung function or brain function up to five, even longer years. That's not to say just because you can measure something at five years that it's having a subjective impact on you, you might be functioning fine. But it's a point to make that it's a hugely impactful thing to go through a period on a ventilator. Something uh, rather ungainly happened to us, to COVID sufferers. Our brains are reacting differently, but we're learning to deal with things. So we, we're more deliberate about the way we deal with things. Obviously, we're very alert to health issues and yeah. so on. But it's more than that. It's a kind of sensory awareness too, I think, where you're alert to people around you because one of the things that happened in your hallucinations is that you were worried that people were approaching you in your bed and with ill design. Yeah. And some of that hypercaution persists after you've been discharged. Really? There's this hyper-awareness. Uh, some of the psychiatrists do compare it with PTSD, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, but I, I'm not sure if it's quite like that, but it, nevertheless, it has common elements uh, to it. And what has it been like? Are you constantly on the lookout for new symptoms? Do you find yourself with a pain wondering if it's part of COVID and the long tail of COVID or if it's just something totally separate? Well, yes, you're quite right. You listen to your body more and you have to pay attention now. And of course, your personality changes a little bit. And there's the whole question of relationship to work too, which has been such a big defining part of my life. And when you find that your brain doesn't work as fast or works in a different way than it used to, then you then you get worried. Or if not worried, then you start to think about how can I put that right? So I've had quite substantial memory loss, which is, I think, coming back in, in most ways. I've learned how to pass all my neurological cognitive uh, tests so that the doctors are satisfied, but I know that it's still not right, that names drop out, that I'm not as fast as I was. At the time, one of the things that had really shaken your understanding of your own experiences was that you'd had these very vivid dreams and hallucinations whilst you'd been in ICU. Have any of those returned? I've had things which I think must be medication-related, very intense dreams, or at least dreams in colour and dreams that sometimes can be quite menacing. But they're not the same quality as the hallucinations that I had in hospital, which must have been, I don't know, I'm no expert on this, but must have been some more or less immediate response to a sense of terror. Yeah, That's not the reason, I don't think, for the kind of dreams I'm having at the moment. It's more, as I say, medication-related, but also... Some degree of confusion, I suppose. It's common, and in that sense, it's normal. Dr Alex Quigley is a clinical psychologist who's been helping Roger with his post-ICU recovery. 
he's been out of hospital for several weeks, maybe a couple of months now. For some people, those very vivid dreams do fade after a few days or a few weeks, but for others, they last a little bit longer. And I think the big thing is about the meaning that is attached to them. If the meaning that is attached is one of threat, one of fear, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm going crazy in inverted commas? And that might be a label that people put on to their experience. That's going to set off a cycle of preoccupation and worry, which will fuel those kind of dreams and experiences and worries about those dreams and experiences. And I think where people have a, a slightly different label of this is distressing, but it's not dangerous. This is something which is harmless to me, but it's explainable. It's upsetting or it's unusual. I think the way we label the experience is key. There's lots of different things that I and we as a team and Roger himself can do to help with that. So I think particularly with nightmares, imagery rescripting is one of the techniques that's used where we would help to practice an alternative ending when people are awake and feeling okay in the daytime and have the ending of a nightmare or the theme of a nightmare being out of control, being in danger, being unsafe in some way, having that rescripted so that there's a sense of feeling safe, a sense of feeling okay, a sense of feeling in control. When people practice that during the daytime, that can often help at nighttime. When we last spoke, for example, you weren't shaving because you'd realised that there were scars from being on the ventilator. Mm. Have you started shaving now? I've started trimming. And so, I, sorry, I'm, as I talk, I'm touching my face. So you, you can't. <laughs> Very fetching beard. <laughs> so on the sides, uh, I don't see any, any scarring. So whatever was there has healed. But underneath the mouth, I think there might be something. And the, the beard there is kind of stronger. So I'd either have to shave the whole thing off and get a dermatologist to look at it or think, you know, I can't be bothered, <laughs> which, is <my> pre <laughs> which is my present situation. Because there are certain kind of men who look in the mirror a lot. And quite often men who you wouldn't expect to, like soldiers. Soldiers look in the mirror all the time because they need to know their uniform sits properly and, and they're, they're conforming to whatever. Yeah. But I've never been a mirror person. And so beards, I don't know if they suit me or not, but I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> but of so, all the side so, effects, it's not the worst. But it's all the side effects. It's, <laughs> it's just easier to go through life without shaving because then you really don't have to bother with that mirror at all. Yeah. <laughs> so I've just let that drift. Because one thing protracted disease like this, uh, especially a very talked about one like COVID, it, it does make you very, not exactly egotistical, but self-referential. Everything's personal and you feel fed up. Very aware of yourself, I suppose. Yes, very self-aware, but also the sense of what does he know? He hasn't had it kind of thing. I, I find that quite a dangerous thing. Yeah, a Disease is nothing to be self-righteous about. It's just what it was. It's just some kind of part of your life. And anything that takes me away from thinking about myself, worrying about myself or over-obsessing, I'm up for it. And we can start right now with mirror <laughs> and just not look in the mirror for, for another year or so. And the last time we talked, I was a little bit worried that there's scar tissue 
hidden by the beard that, that had grown while I was in hospital. But now I couldn't give a damn whether I've got scar tissue <laughs> or not. I'm very zen about this. <laughs> Good. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And with a few months distance now, I mean, how has it affected your relationship with your children? Because obviously they were really being put through the ringer too while you were in ICU. I keep trying in my own sort of old man way to say thank you. But it, it is a shock for relatives. And it's also part of the gulf between the relatives and me because they think, why am I so lighthearted about all of this? And so on. And the reason is, I was not aware that I was about to die. Not much anyway. I mean, there were moments perhaps when I thought something wrong was happening to my body. But they were, yeah, because they had doctors on the line saying, well, I don't know, he's going to survive the night. I don't envy them that experience. But my son has been with me over the last five months. He's leaving now. And we've got to know each other quite well, I suppose. Has it brought you closer? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we know each other more. I think he opens up slightly more and, and he knows quite a lot about what I'm up to. So yeah, yeah, it's 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 good. I think every every father should have his son stay on his sofa for five months and <laughs> best of luck with that. <laughs> Families are always a key part of a patient's recovery. Doctors had to come up with new ways to allow them to interact during lockdown. We've had to change our entire system of communication between patients and families because, of course, visiting was not allowed. And I think it was around the time that Roger was in that we as a hospital and most of the hospitals said, apart from exceptional, very exceptional circumstances, no visiting at all for the hospital. And that's the opposite of what we usually would encourage in intensive care, which is if the patient has a family or relative, to invite them in, to have them at the bedside, involve them in care, hear the comforting sound of their voice and plan discharge with them together so that was all gone as you are coming around from your induced coma don't underestimate the impact that your family and friends can have on your recovery your motivation to rehabilitate to work on learning to eat and drink again to learn how to communicate with say a tracheostomy tube in your throat or to learn to walk again when we last spoke, you also talked about learning to live slower and how during your recovery, but also afterwards, that was one of the things that you really wanted to take from this. What happened, first of all, was because I hadn't read a book for two months or something and encouraged by the doctors, I, I just 
read massively again. And, and that was quite important for me to, uh, I suppose it's therapeutic. It was a way of getting words back. Now I'm reading crime fiction because I haven't read it really in the past, but also because it's about solving a problem. It's about being posed with a problem. And always having a neat answer at the end. Yes, working out what the possibilities are and solving it. Uh, and that makes it sound a bit kind of Sudoku-ish. And of course, it's more subtle than that. I find that quite interesting because it's kind of reteaching me how to approach problems, I suppose, about how to use logic, how to prioritize, how to exclude red herrings in life and these kind of things. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that everyone goes through their lives just reading crime fiction because <laughs> it's a really limited genre. But for me at this moment, it's actually been quite, quite interesting, quite useful. listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times diplomatic editor, Roger Boyce, intensive care consultant, Dr. Joel Mayer, and clinical psychologist, Dr. Alex Quigley. You can read more of Roger's work via a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. To find out more, log on to thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The producer today was Edward Drummond, with help from James Shield, and the executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now we're also available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. We'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow. 